Hi, and welcome to the Unplugged Debate. On this podcast, we delve into the ideas surrounding human interaction with both nature and technology, talking to people about their time in the outdoors, starting from when they were younger all the way through to present day, developing a picture on who and what motivates them to be outside and why they do the things they do in the outdoors, crossing over into talking about their technology usage and how that's changed throughout their life, and speaking to them about the different types of technology they use on a day-to-day basis, from their mobile phones to their running shoes. Once we've developed a good picture of them, we incorporate that into how they think technology has changed their outlook on life and their time in the outdoors. And finishing with how they think technological development has changed society on a wider scale. So hello and welcome. On today's episode, we have Meg Tainter. Um, She attended Mulberry College in the States in Vermont and graduated with a degree in theatre studies, concentrating on directing and also did women's and gender studies uh, in her studies while she was at uni. Um, The American system works slightly differently, so uh, we were just having a chat before and we'll make it you were doing lots of majors and and some minors and stuff. (laughs) It's just sort of like, yeah. it blows my mind, the American system. But anyway, um, <laughs> she spent the next 17 years working in theatres in the States, first as a freelancer, then a founding artistic director in a small theatre in Boston, and finally working at a theatre, uh, cinema and community centre uh, on a small island off the coast of Maine. Uh, however, after three years uh, working in Maine, uh, she felt like she had lost her sense of why she does her work. So she paused and moved to Scotland and pursued a master's in theatre studies at Glasgow University, completed that, and then the pandemic hit. Um, so instead of you being able to go and get funding for a PhD, she went on to um, do a master's in climate justice. And your aim is to um, sort of link the, link the two together, isn't it? So use climate justice, uh, have theatre as a way of sort of demonstrating that and working with it. Yeah, I'm just interested in seeing how theatre can participate in the work that needs to be done around the climate emergency. And so I was I was trying to figure out through this master's I'm currently doing how to get more knowledge around the climate emergency so that I can start to take that into my work as a director. That's cool. Her outdoor experience, she likes to walk. Um, she also camps. Uh, a fair amount actually don't you because you you camp whilst you're in between working for the park aren't you? I do yeah okay and then so uh, you started running but you're rubbish at it absolutely yeah but you do it because it makes your dog happy yeah he's never been more filled with joy than when we're running along a trail he just has this insane look of glee on his face so keep doing it for him fair enough (laughs) Um, but you mainly walk and you said in the first year and a half while you were in Scotland you never went up any of the hills but you were happy doing long distance walks and multi-day walks through glens um, and flat areas of Scotland however last summer you went up your first one row and you found that you liked it 
so you've started going up them a bit more. Yep. Um, could you just tell, tell us who Nan Shepherd's writings are? Ah, so Nan Shepherd uh, is a writer who was, uh, she's from, I think, Aberdeen. She grew up in the Cairngorms and mm -hmm. she was a writer who was basically the first half of the last century. But she wrote um, a book, it's not actually facing me right now because I've loaned out my copy, uh, called The Living Mountain. And it's basically, uh, she wrote it in her youth, tried once to get it published and then didn't get it published. So she put it in a drawer and then pulled it out sort of at the end of her life. And it's never been out of print since it's a Bible for a lot of people, but it's a love letter to the Cairngorms and it writing, reading her writing about them is a way of experiencing the hills in a totally different way. Um, she just, each, each chapter in it celebrates a different part of the, the hills, but she talks a lot about going into the hills as opposed to onto them so that you're going to visit with a friend and spend time with the mountain as opposed to conquer the mountain. And it's, it's something I've always really enjoyed. And a friend gave me her book and as a loan and then was like, just keep it. It clearly is too important to you to give it back. So <laughs> never loan books is the, the moral there. Yeah, never loan books because you never get them out, never get them back. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. So, I mean, that, that, that's quite amazing because um, whilst I was doing my studies, there, there was a, a paper called Do the Mountains Speak for Themselves? Um, and, it, and it's basically talking in the same direction there where, uh, you know, it's what's the connection with it and being outdoors and, and how human beings interact with that. It's, it's quite, it's an interesting read. So if you ever get the chance, have a look at it. Yeah. So sort of first year of adventure education you sort of go oh this is what this is this is cool this is a little taste of what we're supposed to be getting into um but yeah it's interesting i've never heard of Dan shepherd's uh, writing so i might go and have a look at that after yeah you absolutely should there's a really really wonderful edition of it that has a foreword by robert mcfarland and you know his writing is so beautiful too but the she's one of those people who like now that you've heard her name you're going to start seeing references of her everywhere because she's she's inspired so many people who love particularly the scottish outdoors but just who love being in nature mm -hmm. well i mean that that brings us into sort of our first section um and the, where did it all start for you because obviously you sound quite avid about being in the outdoors so um just talk me through from from a young age where you're interest in the outdoors came from? Yeah, I think it's uh, similar to some of the other conversations I've heard you have with guests. It's very much my parents knew to in introduce me to the outdoors very young. And mm. so I think it might have been partially economic. I mean, it's much it's much more affordable to take your kids camping for a, a period of time than it is to to take them on a more, you know, staying in hotels or whatnot. But so we spent a lot of time when I was a kid um, you know, we had a big Volkswagen van again, and we would you know, do these long drives and then camp at campsites. In the States, there's not so much wild camping as there is here, um, just because there's more, the national parks have much less uh, desire to have people just camping up in the hills. So you're meant to be camping at um, mountain bothies that are run by the national park or at assigned campsites. And so we did a lot of that when I was a kid, a lot of uh, hiking. And then I went to school in Vermont at Middlebury, and it was um, in the middle of the Green Mountains, the reason people go, like a lot of people go to Middlebury because there's a January term and you can just go skiing for the whole month. 
have one course during that month and everyone just goes skiing and snowboarding. And I think it's their bribe to keep us in class the rest of the year. But I did a lot of hiking, a lot of cross-country skiing, a lot of biking when I was out there. And then I I feel like I kind of lost it for a little bit. Like I still loved being in nature, but um, I worked in cities for a while. Mm. And so I, I worked in DC for a time and then I moved to Boston and I worked in Boston for a time. And you can definitely still get to beautiful places and you can get to nature, but it is a bit more like you're, it's a destination as opposed to some place that's easy to access. And then when I moved to Maine, I lived in a beautiful, beautiful location. You know, like you could see the ocean from my house and there was a, a large forest right behind me. So I could walk in that every day, but I never really made it a point of going out camping. Mm. And then I moved to Scotland and everything changed. Like <laughs> just... I had come to Scotland in uh, two years before I moved here to walk the West Highland Way. And I had this very like uncanny experience of getting off the plane and feeling very much at home, like more at home than I'd felt anywhere else. And just thinking, oh, this is inconvenient because this is an ocean away from where my actual home is. But I like it here more and I feel more like this is my place. Hmm. And so doing the West Highland Way as my first introduction to Scotland was sort of a way of me learning the country through meeting the people I was meeting when I was walking, but also walking through some really dramatic and gorgeous scenery and experiencing it that way. And so when I came back, when I moved here a few years later to go to school, I knew that a large part of my life wanted to be um, spent in the hills. And we have such remark. I know everyone complains about it, but we have such remarkable public transportation here that you can just from Glasgow, get on a train and an hour later, literally be on a hill is remarkable to me. Um, that just does not exist in the States that same way. Is that because the States are it, it are just so vast that it takes ages to get to places basically? Yeah, I think that, but also like the idea that there would be a train station in like in the middle of nowhere. mountain yeah, yeah is is kind of <laughs> like the the public transit is clustered between cities and so you, you can't just jump on a train and like there's no equivalent to the west highland line where you can get off at speed bridge and then be up in the hills in a moment hmm. and there's definitely like no career station <laughs> no definitely not where where are you actually from in the states is it massachusetts that you're from yeah i grew up about 20 miles west of boston Right. And um, sort of lived, I lived a couple of different places. So I, I went to school in Vermont, then I lived in mm-hmm. DC, and then I moved back to a much closer suburb in Boston and wow. was sort of there. But I think that the strange thing about the States is you don't tend to have state pride in that part of the country. You tend to have regional pride. So I don't think of myself as like a Bostonian or from Massachusetts. I think of myself as a New Englander, um, which claims that whole corner of the States. Mm. I mean, that's quite, it's quite a picturesque part because you've, you've got New York state just there as well. And they've got some quite picturesque hills and mountains there. Um, I guess it's, it's going to be a quite long drive to get to those sorts of things, even from sort of 20 miles west of Boston. Yeah. Um, well, and also there's just such sort of, there's such sprawl, like it's not, it's not that far to get to Western Massachusetts um, mm. in terms of miles, but it is, a three three plus hour drive sometimes depending on what traffic is doing just because there's so many people who are driving around there and, and the, the population is so big and dense um 
Yeah. And I, I think also, as I say, like, because there's not wild camping, Mm. there there's a dollar cost attached to it like it's not just the getting there once you're there there's there's the cost of of staying whereas here I think part of what makes the access to the hills so easy for me is that sense of there's the initial outlay of course for your your gear but once Mm. you have your tent and your backpack and you know your sleeping bag you kind of (laughs) you're kind of ready to go you can just have that in your car at all times and then just head out whenever you want to well, it's, the, it's a capitalist thing in the states, and and that's that's what makes it slightly less attractive. But coming to Scotland, where you do have um, the right to responsible access, um, that sort of speaks to you quite deeply. That that you are able just to you know pay for a train ticket, have your gear, and and go pretty much anywhere you you'd like, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there, there's in a podcast that hasn't been released just yet um, that the um, it's one of my lecturers from university, and he was saying that uh, what you said, that um, it's actually quite a low cost thing. And he said that it was a case of um, tend to be low economic um, areas that would use um, outdoor and adventure as, as a way, as a means of getting away from their city or, or town that they, they were basically doing. Well, certainly in his area it would have been sort of mining and, and fishing. Um, and they would use that as, a, as an escape. So, and that's what you're sort of saying as well for in the States, it's, it's easier um, and more accessible for sort of lower income um, families to go and, and use those spaces rather than having to spend lots of money on maybe a speedboat or something like that to go water skiing or a jet ski. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't mean to suggest that I think my parents were just taking us camping because of the cost. Like my parents are, avid naturalists and love the outdoors and and we did we did a lot of wonderful wonderful trips with them that weren't you know free because it was you know if you're canoeing the Saco River for a week there's definitely an outlet there as well Um, but it's just sort of like their their love of the wild and their love of natural places led them to that was where they chose to focus their time and that was where we as a family as a result I have two older brothers um, spent a lot of time both of my brothers were boy scouts and I was always wildly resentful because the boy scouts got to go actual camping and i was a girl scout and we went to heated cabins in the woods and i was always so (laughs) upset that the girl scouts was such a terrible organization that they didn't respect the i'm sure it's different now i'm sure that um they've come a long way with that but just that we never got to like pitch tents because we were always in pre-built structures (laughs) did you never try and sneak off with the brothers to go go camping with them in in the boy scouts then Oh, that would have been interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that my big brothers would have wanted me tagging along. <laughs> Probably not. So that's you saying that's sort of where it started. What age was that? Was that from like really early through to your teens or? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think from really, really early. So I grew up in, my parents had a house that was on a busy road, but it was, it backed up onto a woods. And I know we all sort of have this nostalgia about our childhoods back when it was safer and you know we were allowed to roam, but I really do have long memories of in the summer sort of leaving my house after breakfast and maybe coming back for lunch. But you know, as long as I didn't cross the major road, I was allowed to do whatever I wanted. And so my brothers and I would be in the woods playing and there was an old railroad line that ran through there. So you could walk the old railroad line for quite a distance. Um, and I, I think if I were ever to go back to that town, my parents don't live there anymore. 
I would probably be surprised at how small that woods was. But when I was a kid, it felt just epic. And it felt like it was like this amazing kingdom that I could explore. So even on that level, I was, I what we weren't allowed to watch more than I think an hour a day of TV. And it had to be from a prescribed list of shows that didn't have adverts in them, um, which was great. Uh, so we didn't watch TV. We didn't play video games. We didn't have any of that stuff. That wasn't, that wasn't part of my parents' values to, to give that to us. And I really, really respect that. It did turn me a little bit into a TV junkie as an adult because <laughs> I'm now allowed to watch it. <laughs> but um, as a kid, it was, you play outside or you play in the garden or, you know. Hmm. That's, that's quite interesting as well. I had to train a thought and it's, it's disappeared, but when was, when was your childhood? Uh, the sort of like, is it the eighties? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I turned 42 next month. So, uh, so I was a kid in the eighties and then I started high school in the early nineties. Hmm. So it was a more innocent time. Yeah. Not, not, to, not, not to ask, not to ask your age, obviously, because you're not supposed to do that. Um, you volunteered. I'm, it, I'm so amused by my age. I feel like I still am like 12. So I think it's funny that I'm now. That, that was, that, that was the point I was going to make is, um, Certainly, when you're younger, that you're uh, until you actually get out into the big wide world, you never you don't get that perspective. So that woodland would have seemed massive to you when you were when you were young, but obviously, the more you the more you travel and the, the older you get, the the smaller it seems. Um, and I found that in, in, in the things that I've done, um, I used to live in a town that you could easily walk uh, to the town but it seemed like an epic distance when I was younger. You were always looking for a lift into town. It was only like three miles down the road. And you're sort of like, well, why don't you just walk? But it seems huge, like an epic distance. And then when you go and cycle sort of Land's End to John O'Groats or you go and um, do a marathon or something, the, your, your perspective on how how small of a journey that was is, um, so that's, that's quite an interesting thing that you said there. So it's, um, it's a case of, um, it seemed huge at the time, but the, the older you get, the more you realise that actually it was this tiny little wood, but it seemed massive at the time. So yeah, um, so that um, so obviously, I suppose that's the suburbs of Boston you lived in, um, and when you sort of moved to Vermont, um, how what, sort of where were you in Vermont uh, doing your degree? Yes. So Middlebury College was, it's, it's in the town of Middlebury, which is about halfway up the state. So it's, um, it's about an hour south of, well, 40 minutes south of Burlington, um, which is not the capital, but should be the capital. Uh, it's just a really cool town on the side of a really beautiful lake. Um, and what was it? So it's about half, Middlebury is halfway up the state, but it's sort of on the border of not on the border, but it's very close to the border with New York running up the other side. Mm -hmm. And so you could really, um, just close to the school, like the school owned its own mountain. Um, so you could get, you could go hiking, you could go swimming. There was a lot of uh, woodland trails that you could go to and uh, the Appalachian Trail ran very close to the school. So actually for orientation, so our first week at school, uh, we're all 18 and think that we're you know, really amazing and independent. And I look back and I'm like, oh my God, I was a child. Um, 
you could choose uh, what you wanted to do for orientation. So you could do like a sports orientation if you were going to play sports in school, or you could do a city one, or there was something that was called Moo, Middlebury Outdoor Orientation. And you just went with an upperclassman. I think the guy who led our group was a junior. And uh, you just hiked the Appalachian Trail for three days. And it was fantastic. Like it was a really great introduction to what was immediately available to us outside of our school grounds. All it move, you definitely have to go on that, don't you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm always amazed by, by the wilderness that you, you have in the States. Uh, and, and is it true that a lot of people from the States actually don't have their own passport? Yeah, I think so. I mean, most of the people who I, that's not true. Yeah, I was going to say most people who I know have a passport, but that's not true. There's, the States is big enough that I think that, that if, if you're not curious about traveling outside of the boundaries of the States, there's no reason why you would need to get your passport. Um, I had one from a very young age. My, my mom's a Spanish teacher. And so every other year, our family vacation went to a Spanish speaking country. So when I was five, we went to Spain. When I was seven, we went to Costa Rica. Um, so I just always had one, but it, it definitely wasn't a given that that was what you would do as, as an American. I don't know how much that's changed now, but that was my experience growing up. I mean, it's, it's so vast and, and, you know, the scenery changes from east to west and north to south so much that, um, you know, you could spend, you could spend your whole life just exploring the States. Um, and I mean, what, what a, a wonderful playground to sort of grow up in. Um, yeah, my first job after finishing college was I was hired to be part of a, a touring theater company called the National Players. And mm -hmm. um, it was a it, less glamorous than it sounds like 13 of us who had a truck, a van and a car. And we we did all of our own stuff. So we had to set up our sets and, and you know, build costumes and hang lights. And you travel around to schools and community centers all over the country. And so we were, basically we went from Maine to Georgia to, we had a show in South Dakota. Um, and so we were sort of traveling all over and it was, the, the itinerary was insane. So it wasn't like we would do all of our Georgia shows in one month, we would do Georgia and then we'd go to Chicago and then we'd go out to North Dakota and then we'd be up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and you know, you're traveling all over. But we really got a sense of watching the land change around us. Um, and of course this was, before GPS was sort of standard on a, like phones were a little bit different in 2001. And so we were doing it off of printing out Yahoo maps. And <laughs> so it was getting lost was a real possibility. Like we took what looked like a shortcut and got stuck on dairy roads in Michigan for a really long time. <laughs> that, that's, that sounds fantastic to be perfectly honest with you. A bit scary, but fantastic at the same time. Yeah. I mean, what, what an adventure. And so one thing that um, obviously speaking to people that are slightly older than me, it's, it's always interesting because they've grown up in uh, a period that basically was either void of um, easy access technology, that we digital technology that we have today. And even speaking to you there, you're sort of downloading Yahoo Maps and you probably had to go to an internet cafe to get that and print it off and pay for it and stuff. We'll get onto the technology stuff, but I just want to hit on this bit just now is that 
Do you, with obviously the advent of so much digital mapping and you can have it at your fingertips, to, to do that, did you feel more connected with the adventure that you were doing um, because you had to sort of really plan ahead? Did you, um, compared to now, where you can just quickly look it up uh, in the morning if you wanted to and go and do it? Did you, yeah, what I'm saying is, did you feel more connected to that adventure than the, some of the adventures you do now? Yeah, um, well, I think I had a better sense sometimes if I'm going walking, I plan my route carefully, mm -hmm. right? Like I, I've looked at maps and I've plotted out on maps. So I have a really good sense of it in my brain, but I think it's really different for, for traveling by car because if I'm driving somewhere, I just plug in the final address and then I do what the voice in my car tells me to do. And so I don't have a sense, you know, I'm now commuting pretty regularly up into the Trossachs for work. And it took me a while to like, even know what the numbers of the roads I was on was because I, I'm just following a voice as opposed to really understanding what the roads are doing. So I think I had better comprehension of like where things were in relation to each other when I had to sort of plot it out in an analog way. Hmm. Maybe. Yeah. It's just interesting you said that because uh, one of uh, Steve said in his podcast that uh, he was in Canada and they went on a, a big sort of rafting trip down one of the major rivers in Canada whilst he was out there doing his, uh, whilst he was doing yeah, his PhD, I think it was. And I mean, they this was in the early nineties and they had a, a doctor with them just in case something happened. Um, so, and I was talking to him about the same sort of thing where they were sitting around a campfire and they had no phones to sort of sit there, take a picture and sort of really remember it. So that's why I was asking if you felt more a, a bigger sense of connection with the adventure beforehand because uh, I asked the same question to him. Yeah. I also think so what you were saying about internet cafes when I when I turned 30 I had never really traveled as an adult um, so like my passport had lapsed because I was they don't last from when you're five to when you're 30 so mm. I, I got a new passport and I took myself to Greece for three weeks um, just because I love Greek mythology and I wanted to go see all those places that were so important for Greek theater. And so it was this big pilgrimage. And it was amazing that sense of, I had planned so meticulously because I was traveling alone and I'd never done that before. And I was really, really nervous that I would be lonely or bored or not know how to engage. And so everything was sort of meticulously planned. And then when I got there, I just sort of realized that that wasn't healthy for me to do that. And so sort of let it go. And there's this amazing thing that, that happens when you're sort of island hopping in Greece, which is that, you know, the ferry pulls up to a harbor and you walk out and there's just dozens of people holding up signs for, for their dramatia that they want you to rent a room in. And so you can sort of just, you can create moments of serendipity for yourself, mm. but you're also completely untethered to life back home. Like, in that time, which was, you know, not that long, it was only 12 years ago, but um, I didn't have my email on my phone. <clears throat> I didn't have social media on my phone. And so if I wanted to know what was going on back home, it was a choice as opposed to, oh, I'm just bored. So I'm just going to scroll through this right now and I'll find out what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and so you could feel more away from the world without having to make that a choice that you were doing. 
I mean, we, we've started to sort of touch on it just now. So we'll head into the, the sort of the second section and, and start to talk about your, the technology use. And so you were sort of talking earlier about uh, how your parents, like you had a set amount of TV time and, and things like that when you were younger. So, I mean, you really didn't have huge amounts of sort of digital input basically when you when you were growing up. So that's going to be a big change for you as you got older. And like you said, now, now you can, and you, you don't have your parents telling you, you know, you can only have an hour of TV and you binge watch stuff now. Um, just talk us through how that's changed over your, over your life. Yeah, I think I go through sort of waves with it. So, so like TV and media consumption, um, I can just watch YouTube videos for as a way of distracting myself from work I'm supposed to do for really long periods of time. Like I can fall down rabbit holes really quickly. Um, and so I do tend to sort of set restrictions on myself. I think it's like when you're not allowed to have sugar as a kid and then all of a sudden you become a sugar junkie as soon as you move out of your parents' home, uh, which also <laughs> happened to me. But uh, so I think the pendulum swung for me when I first moved out and was on my own. Um, I lived with a bunch of women in DC who had been friends of mine in college who I loved. And like, they really loved the, the TV program, The Gilmore Girls. Mm. And I hated it. I thought it was like, I, I still hate it. I think it's a terrible show. And I think it's morally bankrupt. But um, <laughs> I would watch it with them for hours. Like Sunday morning, I would go upstairs and I would watch this TV show, which I actively hated mm. um, because it was TV and it was there for me to consume. And so yeah. I sort of went through that phase. And then I've, I've definitely swung back. I, I tend to have it be something that is maybe during the pandemic, I watched more than was healthy, but I don't tend to, you know, make that be my plan anymore. I do still love books and reading and, um, and yeah, sometimes at the end of the day, I'm just so tired from looking at my screen for, you know, the dissertation work I'm doing. I just, that, that seems insane to me that I would do more. Um, in terms of other technology, uh, I've always been, I've, I've always had a large element of, of needing to use computers for my work. Um, as a theater producer or theater administrator, I've always needed to have really good uh, tech skills in that sense of being able to organize and coordinate and um, edit and write. And so computers have always been really important for me in that sense. Um, as they've moved from being really chunky, like desktop things to things that can move out into the world or that I can actually start doing some of that work on my phone, that's been really liberating for me in terms of, of where I can work and what my relationship to that can be. And then I think my phone is <laughs> things where I, I really hate it. Like I hate my phone and I also feel completely tied to it in all ways. Um, it's super useful for being, uh, for, for, for long walks, like just to know that I've got maps on it that I can access and I can plan routes and I can follow routes. Um, that's really great knowing that I can uh, contact emergency services if I need to, if anything were to happen. Um, although I never want to be the person who has to contact emergency services. I'm sort of meticulous with my planning and safety. <laughs> um, I recently got myself one of these like watches that can do everything um, because I was going to be walking a lot this summer for work. And so I thought, oh, well, how fun to turn my body into a science project and actually like be able to track my steps and know where I've went and, and see what that looks like. Um, and then so you I like realize that there wasn't much walking to do. With There's the no walking. We're just in vans. <laughs> 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 uh, 
I can invent ways to walk. I, I can I can park my van at the end of a camping permit site and walk a long distance. <laughs> um, yeah, and I what I really love is there, there was an app that uh, I came across about two years ago that has since been sold and is no longer, it's now part of Outdoor Active and that that site sucks. But when it was View Ranger, it was the most wonderful app because it was, it would help you plan routes. Um, it tapped into OS maps. You could track your walks on it. You could share them with other people. Um, and so now I'm using, I think, just OS maps for that. But I, I am mourning the loss of ViewRanger because it was such a good site. And now it is such a bad site. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry, Interactive. Your interface is terrible. <laughs> terrible. Well, fortunately, I'm not sponsored by them, so it's fine. Good. You'd have to cut that part out. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I mean that's that's sort of how your your technology use has changed um as you as you uh, and and what you use on a on a daily basis as as you've grown up um let's delve into sort of you said you went on camping trips when you were younger um and you do a lot of camping now how has that technology changed like what kinds of tents were you using back then were you using like canvas ones that, that are set in the storm setting whether there's nice a-frames with poles that go through it or yeah yeah so we had growing up we had the same three tents um one was a dome tent that i think had three poles that held it up and it sort of self-standing you didn't really need to peg it down mm -hmm. one was a pup tent that was you know one of those like traditional triangle shape um and i don't know what happened to those tents and then my dad had a like a two-man tent that when I moved to Scotland, he loaned me. Um, mm -hmm. And it was probably 30 years old at that point in time. And you know, after I, I did re-waterproof it and all that, but it it definitely was not up to camping in the Highlands. So about a year and a half ago, I, I said, Dad, I'm, I'm gonna be buying myself a new tent. So do what, what what do you want me to do with this? Do you want me to mail it back? And he was like, I think my days of sleeping on the ground might be over. So you can donate it to someone. So his tent is now living at its retirement in a very lovely woman's back garden for her grandkids to play in, which is great. Oh, very nice. Um, yeah, so I think the gear has really changed in the sense that um, like we've the technology of, of making things lighter has gotten yeah. much better. So I, I was using the same back frame I've had for probably 20 years until last summer when for my birthday, I was like, I should treat myself and buy myself a new back frame. And I put it on and like, I think a lot of my friends got phone calls from me being like, look at this. I'm so, this is amazing. Like it just carried the weight in a better way and was more comfortable. Um, this year I had that same experience with a sleeping bag <laughs> where I suddenly was like, oh, it turns out people don't have to be uncomfortable when they're camping. I just thought that was part of it. And now I've got this new sleeping bag. But I think it's one of those things where like, you know, you, you spend the time, you get the right gear, and then that gear should last you forever. It drives me crazy. You know, in our work, we see a lot of people who bought the 10 pound or the 15 pound tent at Tesco that morning. And their their plan is to leave it behind and, and, and fly tip. But like, those tents are terrible. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't be encouraging people to use the outdoors in a single use kind of way. We should be we should encourage gear that is going to last and we should make that kind of gear affordable to people so that people's only option isn't to buy something that can't stand up to more than one or two outings. Yeah, we, we do, we do see a lot of, um, a lot of that where 
Yeah, you, you can you can go and get a forty-five pound tent, and and people will just come and they'll camp and and they'll leave it behind, and it's just such a shame to see. And you, you're right, and and they've actually changed the um, legislation in, in in the UK is is that we now have to sort of repair things before we can under warranty before we can just get a new one or, or move it on, basically. Um, so yeah. Uh, we, we sit there most after most weekends and heads in your hands going oh god another 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 week of picking up tents and litter basically which is which is such a shame but yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it feels like it's it's so short-sighted because there we don't like the planet does not have an infinite capacity to just give us stuff that we then throw out like we need to figure out how to break that cycle because we're overusing and, and we need to stop, like we just need to stop. There's no, there's no alternative where like this festival culture of you buy your deer and you throw it away right afterwards is remotely sustainable in any way. And yeah, we just need to use our fair share. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that one, but um, we won't get too much into that because uh, that can get quite heated. <laughs> It'll be an entirely, an entirely different podcast that I'm trying oh, to write for you there. Yeah, it certainly would be, yeah. Um, and, and so, you you know, different different tents and, and things like that, but have you seen a market, market improvement in your clothing that you wear as well when you go out and do these sorts of things? Like yeah, absolutely. Saying, yeah, you, you were saying about how uh, materials have got lighter but you can also stay warmer and that's what Nick said in, in his is that wetsuits and, and that technology has changed so much that you can be in a thinner wetsuit and stay just as warm or warmer now than when he first started so yeah I mean and it's also as long as you take care of your gear if you're getting good gear then it it will sort of last you and you can the one thing I really haven't found a solution for is is boots like I had I had a really good pair of hiking boots that I had to retire 2018 that I'd had for 12 years I think and they were they were great but then just like I think Scotland killed them Scotland's so wet <laughs> they never dried out and I was walking through bogs with them and they were just like we we, we give up um and I I think yeah I, I think the the hiking boots I have now are wonderful but I don't know that I don't know that I have boots that are going to last me 12 years you know I, I don't know if that's a thing that I have anymore but the rest of the the sort of the hiking clothing that is more lightweight. Um, it's easier to get access to stuff that I think would have been prohibitively expensive a couple of years ago. Um, that it's just as the technology has been improving, you can mm. get, you don't need to be buying the highest end stuff in order to be comfortable and be able to move through the hills. And I am a little bit of a gear junkie. So, you know, I have like a very detailed pack list. That's a spreadsheet. I show it to you sometimes. It's ridiculous. It's like mm. what what goes in each pocket of my camping bag. Um, but every time I go out, I think of like, oh, this is the last piece of gear I need, and then everything will be done. <laughs> then I get that titanium spork, and then oh, there's <laughs> one more piece of gear I need. <laughs> so yeah, that's the problem with tech. That's good is that you want more of it. Yeah, that's that's that tends to be what. Uh... As soon as you get into that sort of thing, you're always looking for the next bit of gear. It's like when you go and if you're um, interested in buying shoes or bags or things like that, you end up going, oh, there's another bag out. It's been, I'm going to go and get it. Well, same with shoes. But I think um, I think that's just 
I think that's just human nature is that we, we find a niche that we we enjoy and yeah. we look to expand on that and and we end up buying more and so I've already got a set of really nice aluminium camping uh like Tupperware and knife and fork and things but that's like titanium ones are even lighter and they're, they're shiny so I'm gonna go and get those so yeah that's um and I tend to I tend to not restrict my like I know there's campers who are always trying to pare down the weight pare down the weight pare down the weight but I hike with a 90 pound dog mm-hmm. and like he has a sleeping pad and a sleeping bag and he's got like if we're out in any kind of cold weather he's got like pajamas that are really for me because I like having him in them and then he's got tons of food and so like he his gear is so heavy that it feels silly for me to be like well no then I won't take this extra little thing because I know I'm just going to be carrying a ton of stuff anyway so as long as I'm comfortable and can do it I'm not stressed about making excellent time he can't Hmm. he can't really do more than 12 miles a day in the hills anyway just because he'll get tired and he's a dog so he doesn't understand like powering through past the comfort point so like we yeah. stop when he's tired and that's just how we do it it's a very relaxed way of traveling well if, i mean that's <laughs> that's good for uh, keeping you uh, healthy whilst you're walking in the hills as well if you yeah what what dog what dog do you have uh he is a german shepherd cross he's yeah. the best dog in the world he's um so i adopted him when i lived in maine and then he came over with me. And I think like Scotland has been not just better for me, but his life has so much improved. He just, he, he enjoys being a Scottish dog now. Fair enough. I mean, that's what every dog owner says, that their dog is the best dog in the world. Well, I mean, it's nice that they all think that, but I'm actually right. <laughs> Fair enough. We, we started to sort of touch on it as well. And you were saying about how um, how it's changed um, up to now, sort of culture-wise and and societal-wise. With you know, you you were really listing how technology is used as a, as a tool, basically, um, to aid you in what you're doing. Um, and obviously, you, you do say that you sit there and, and you watch YouTube, and um, you know, instead of doing something else, you, if you're bored, you'll just Sit there and sit there and, and use your phone and stuff. So, just sort of let's talk about um, how you think from when you were younger all the way through to now, how modern technology has changed our culture and society. Yeah, I, th- I, I think we've become. How about I not speak for society? I'll speak for me. Uh, I've noticed a shorter attention span. Um, mm-hmm and a, a less of a willingness to be bored. Mm-hmm. So I can always, it, I can, it's gonna be the exact same stuff I just scrolled through, but I can always mm-hmm. scroll through the internet. And um, I took myself off Facebook last year cause it was getting, I was recognizing that it was deeply unhealthy for me. I was recognizing that I didn't want that anymore. Um, and then uh, there was a documentary that I think someone else has mentioned about uh, how social media works and like how that thing that happens when you're scrolling, it's, it's hitting the same part of your brain that's stimulated by like playing the lottery. Um, What news thing is going to pop to the top. And I really recognize that myself. So I took social media off my phone for a couple months and that was really good because I still use Twitter. I find it really helpful to be engaged politically and to 
participated in the research that I'm participating with through Twitter. Um, and I just really carefully curate what I see on Twitter so that I'm not getting stuck into nonsense. Um, and I, I use Instagram very, very little. Like I think my bio on my Instagram page is something like really just pictures of my dog. And that's kind of what it is. It's just a lot of pictures of Perry in beautiful places. Yeah. Um, but uh, I use that just to see pictures of my friends' kids. You know, like I like to see my friends' lives and Instagram feels like a much lower impact way to do that than Facebook where you're also getting like just deeply horrific scribes of violence and ugliness. Um, and, and Instagram feels inherently less political, but I think I might have to question that. I think that's, my Instagram feed might be that, but I don't know that that's true. Hmm. Um, so I think social media has done a lot in terms of creating connectivity for us and creating um, ways for us to be um, in touch with each other. But I think it's also shortened our attention spans and made us less willing to sit with silence, sit with our loneliness for moments of time. Um, and I think sitting with loneliness is probably really healthy for humans. So I, I do try to build that in. I think that I, I now, I live across the ocean from like all of the people I love the most in the world, my whole family, all of my friends from childhood. Um, and I don't feel isolated from them. I feel like I can have a WhatsApp call with my best friend every other week. I can chat to my parents when I want to. I can talk to my big brother. I can speak to my nephew. And it's not prohibitively expensive. In fact, it's free, mm. um, which is like amazing. If you think about 10 years ago, trying to stay that connected to someone across the ocean, it would have been absolutely insane. I know my parents, for a time, my brother lived overseas when my nephew was really, really young and my parents were able to read my nephew's storybooks because they could do it over, it was probably Skype at the time. Mm. Remember how Skype had like a 15 year head start and then we don't talk about it anymore because it's a terrible platform. We just use Zoom. Well, yeah, it's, um, that's a case of, um, it's not the first to get it. It's, it's the person that develops the best way to do it. So yeah. then you, you'll have companies that will develop the technology and then it tends to be the second or third company that take on that, yeah. that actually perfect it. Yeah, but it, for a while it was Skype was the generic term like Band-Aid that we used and now it's mm. Zoom. Um, so I think that element of, of like this increased connectivity is amazing. Um, and I don't know that I could have lived overseas and been so far from my family without having that element. Um, but yeah, I think that social media is really dangerous and we all know that <laughs> we all mm. participate in it anyway because it's addictive. Um, that's challenging. There's something I really wanted to say. I mean, what, what you touched on there is, is um, you know, you, you were saying that it's being an active user of social media. So staying in contact with friends and, and that sort of thing, um, it, it, it is a positive thing what you're saying about sort of just scrolling through and and the negativity that could be on there um if you're a passive user and you're just scrolling through then it has increased symptoms of depressive swings because of because of that but being an active user so like changing manipulating or adding content to these things then it's actually helpful to humans it doesn't produce the same thing as being a passive user so you know, and you are right in what you're saying is that 
I have friends that are all over the globe, basically. Uh, my best friend's in Shanghai. So, uh, you know, I get to speak to him <laughs> easily. And you imagine if it was 10, 20 years ago, you'd be sending letters or yeah. whatever, or you, you wouldn't even talk to him until you actually saw him again. Um, and I mean, he probably wouldn't have even got the job out in Shanghai if he hadn't had the internet and technology. So um, you are right in, in that. But I think also there's like the way that we use technology shifts so quickly. So when I started my job at the, the theater company in, in Maine, I like really quickly made a rule that I didn't want us to use texting or I didn't want people to use texting as a way to get a hold of me because it felt like uh, texting was being used as a way of pretending you weren't interrupting someone, but you actually were. So you weren't sending an email, which I could then be like, I only answer emails within work hours, but you weren't calling me, but you had this text there that felt like this weird middle ground. And I, I still don't like texting for business purposes. I find it really gross, but I text all the time to friends now, like as, as you are well aware, <laughs> you get texts from me all the time. Um, but uh, I love having like, not, not like, I don't like planning or conversing via text, but I love having the ability to just like send little quick things to people and, and stay connected that way. Um, or like, I just have a, an ongoing stream of WhatsApp or signal conversations with people. Um, and I don't do as much emailing anymore. Like emailing used to be this massive part of my life and it really doesn't feel like that anymore. And I don't know when that switched. Like I can't track the moment when that changed for me. Um, when I shifted from being someone who hated texting and wanted you to phone call or email to someone who I really don't, I really don't ever want to answer my phone. It's not a thing I want to ever do <laughs> to, um, and just, I'm just, just, just send a text. It's interesting you say that as well is because, um, certainly in, um, a lot of the, uh, podcasts certainly Nick's for example was that um, you know he'd be answering emails outside of work time and there is an inability now for us to actually switch off um, and, and and move away from that because I know that um, if I'm waiting for an email I'll be outside work hours I'll be waiting there and on my phone waiting for the email to come through or you know so we, we never like you say we never get that time to be alone and have a little bit of loneliness in our life and you know it's a case of how does that affect us really um being so connected all the time i mean it's great for being able to, to be social yeah go for it yeah yeah so it's i think it's just about setting up boundaries so when i was doing my dissertation for my theater masters i just made the decision i would only check email in the morning and in the evening and i added a little line to my email signature that said that and then really, really liked that and have kept that. I do sometimes check email more than that, but I think I've, I've now set up the expectation with people who contact me that if it's urgent, give me a call. If not, I'll get to this when I get to it. But, but email is something I'm not willing to have be not my time. Mm. But that's, that's a great way of, of setting out boundaries to maintain a, a level of control, I guess, is, is what you'd say because a lot of our habits now are, are because what you're saying is is that um 
social medias uh, hit the reward network in our brains and and that's that's what they are designed to do is and that's why you have like the red notification buttons and because they really want you to interact with it because that's how they they work basically and so they want you to be using it and and you get a sense of gratification from it so um you mm -hmm. so it's a case of you're right you need it's kind of having to set those boundaries to make sure that you're not being consumed by it all i suppose that's great <laughs> thanks uh thanks for that <laughs> that's much i mean we've just covered some really great stuff um obviously at the end of my podcast i like to ask uh, people a question that sort of just changes it up and it's a nice way to finish i think um so if you had the opportunity money was not money and time was no 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 worries um and you could live off the grid for a year would you and where would you go and what would you do yeah absolutely um yeah absolutely uh i think what would i do oh well I think I would want to money and time's no obstacle, right? I can, I can just like magically, I get a parcel of land somewhere. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I'm super interested in permaculture gardening. Um, I did a, a permaculture design certificate this past fall. And I, one of the things that I'm sad about in life is I don't have, I don't have a garden and I don't have, uh, it's the first time in my life I've not had a garden, like living in mm -hmm. Scotland because I live in a flat. Um, but, uh, I would like to be in a place where I could just like have a small croft and start working and trying to figure out how I could become, how I could build that into my life and how I could make that a feasible option. Hmm. I know you can't build a garden in a year. That's a crazy thing to think, but you can start the process. Well, I mean, if, if you had, that time wasn't an issue and you had all the money in the world and that's how you wanted to be self-sufficient and, and, and live your life in that time, to set it up would be beneficial. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for that, Meg. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Once again, big thank you to Meg for joining us on the Unplugged debate. Next time, we'll have Alan Milne on giving his perspective on the Unplugged debate. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>